This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 26, William the Duke. Today is a huge day for young William. See, though being born to the nobility and raised there, William was never fully accepted as we know. And when his father made the the move to legitimize him, it was only by force. Then, suddenly, his father was gone, and so was his noble upbringing, more or less. From the ages of 8 to 14, he would experience some of the worst treatment a child could receive, mentally, physically, and emotionally. If you're not as sick of hearing this as I am of saying it, well, tough luck, because here it goes once more. By all accounts, William should never have made it past the age of, say, 10 at the oldest. But he does. And here's the part of the story where his legacy really begins. I hope you enjoy the show. Though one could look upon young William Fitzrobert, Duke of Normandy, As a tragic hero in the medieval European story, one need also balance the trauma that was inflicted upon him and those around him with the results of such a childhood. As we touched on briefly in the last episode, William was nothing, if not a resilient young man, but that summation also says nothing about the effects such a life had on him mentally and emotionally. William is recorded later in life, saying, quote, I was schooled in war from childhood, end quote. That is a hauntingly tragic perspective. Being schooled in war, as he says, before he could fully understand the complexities of human emotion and the intrigues of the Frankish and Norman political webs being spun by those encircling him, tragic doesn't quite cut it. To subject a mere child to such realities is precisely what well-meaning parents of any generation from, from any culture in any part of the world seeks to prohibit. Parents are the filters, for better or for worse, for how the child experiences the world around him or her. They allow certain information while censoring others, and and they trickle the harsh realities of life when they see that their child is ready for it. At least, that's the idea anyway. To subject a child to the harsh realities of the human condition or human nature prematurely is, I don't know, I think it's safe to say reckless. This might actually be considered the very definition of childhood trauma. 
In 11th century Normandy, William wasn't afforded such luxuries as a parent who sought to keep him from these harsh realities of his mere existence. To be sure, there are a myriad of examples of strong women raising, excuse me, rising to the top of the hierarchy. We've already mentioned a couple on this podcast in both Emma of Normandy and Zoe the Purpleborn in Constantinople. But there's no evidence that William's mother, Erliva, ever exhibited such an affinity for influence and power. William was, one could say, left exposed in tumultuous winds of, Norman, of the Norman reality. We can assume from 1035 to 1037, William, ages 8 through 10, might have had a relatively effective filter as though he was duke by title, his great-uncle, Archbishop Robert of Rouen, siphoned most of the control over the duchy in his stead. William's eyes no doubt opened further to his status and reality between the death of the archbishop in 1037 and the deaths of Count Alan III of Brittany, Osborne Fitzerfest, Count Gilbert of Brion, and his tutor, all between 1040 and 1041. When one's world comes crashing down, one can no longer be protected from the buffeting winds of change. But it was during these years that the real enemy began to manifest within William's midst, unbeknownst to many around him, including the young duke. Now, it's no secret that William had enemies from the very beginning. The barons of Normandy, again, were a restless and power-hungry bunch, no doubt coming by it honestly through their Norse blood. But one person a boy, like William, was the real enemy. Sometime around 1040 or 1041, a boy was sent to William's household to be trained alongside the young duke and his friends, William Fitzosborne, Roger de Beaumont, and Roger de Montgomery. This boy's name was Guy, and he hailed from the county of Burgundy in, southern, excuse me, in southeastern West Francia. Guy, it is, worth noticing, it is worth noting, received the titles of Count of Brion and Vernon upon the death of his and William's cousin, Gilbert of Brion, in 1040. Guy came to live with William, but there must have been more to it than merely training in the Norman court. In 1040, tempers came to a boil in eastern Normandy when our old friend Roger of Tosny came out of relative isolation with his beloved wife, Gotalina, when he began invading his neighbor's lands. However, it was his raid of Lord Humphrey of Villiers in southeastern Normandy when, Ro excuse me, when Roger's luck ran out. During this small feud, local forces began choosing sides. Those who supported William's legitimacy followed Humphrey, while those who opposed William's claim followed Tosny. William's benefactors helped Humphrey repel any further invasions, but it was Humphrey's own son, another Roger, who finally killed the Moor eater, Roger of Tosny. The Tosnys, being in southeastern Normandy, near Falais, and opposite the majority of William's detractors, who were mainly out west, would be blacklisted for years. And to add insult to injury, it was one of the Tosny castles that was targeted by King Henry I of France. It was the castle of Tilliers, 
After the death of Roger of Tosny and the loss of Tilleris, as well as the death of Roger's two eldest sons soon after, the Tosnys would lick their wounds and reorient their family's name to one day be in a position to reclaim a, a modicum of respect within the duchy. As the boys continued, quote-unquote, earning their spurs, again, a term that means, you know, finally earning your way into knighthood, William and Guy began to separate down two conflicting paths, whether they knew it or not. Between 1043 and 1045, William aged not only in his physical presence, but he also aged in his ability to take the political reins of the duchy, while Guy also began establishing connections around the duchy. See, Guy and presumably his family back in Burgundy as well held that William was, in fact, illegitimate, and that Guy, not William, was the rightful heir to the Duchy of Normandy. You see how this is playing out? Now, I would imagine, knowing the importance of bloodlines back then, that everyone knew of Guy's claim to the duchy, but either way, Guy did what it took to ingratiate himself with the barons of the duchy until he was ready to act upon it. See, Guy was the direct grandson of Duke Richard II. Guy's mother was Alice, whom Duke Richard had married off to Count Reginald I of Burgundy just a generation earlier. That's a razor-thin separation if there ever was one, and one could certainly make the case, should we adopt 11th century Norman customs, that Guy's claim was far more legitimate than William's. By 1045, William was 18 years old, while Guy of Burgundy was only two or three years older. But they would assume monumental roles in this off-overlooked showdown in the history of Normandy. The winner of this showdown would steer Normandy in any number of directions going forward. There's no way to tell exactly where Normandy would settle had Guy won out. But we know where William's victory guided the duchy because William had one fateful ace up his sleeve. But more on that ace later. While William still lacked the influence and experience to fully take control of his duchy, he was still becoming more and more vocal in its dealings with both within the duchy and outside the duchy, namely in the way that William actively sought to curtail the growing independence of the nobility in western Normandy which would lead to problems very soon for William. Guy, on the other hand, had placed himself perfectly for a claim to the dukedom. This would be, for all intents and purposes, William's first challenge as duke. I say the quote-unquote first because, though he had overcome so much already, it wasn't until Guy's rebellion that William would act as his own rudder. William, up to 1045, was more or less being steered as opposed to piloting his own ship. He was a passenger, a student. I mean, as he said, he was schooled in the art of war from a very early age, right? But in 1046, it would erupt. William was out hunting in the Catentin. If you remember, the Catentin was the was the northward jutting peninsula that pierced the English Channel, not to mention the home of the Hopeville estate, 
by this time being ruled by Serlo de Hauteville since the death of Papa Tancred in 1041. The Cotentium was already known as an area that was hostile to William and his illegitimate claim, but William was there regardless. Guy and his allies met in nearby Bayou, an already ancient town having been mentioned in the writings of Claudius Ptolemy 900 years earlier. But it's crucial that we mention that we simply do not know for sure whether this ultimate rebellion was instigated by Guy, or if Guy was merely a pawn by other hostile noblemen within Normandy. Guy most definitely, as we learned, knew full well his claim to the duchy, but but whether he was willing to act on it out of his own volition or not is where the murkiness of the story kind of begins. Either way, we know who was in attendance at Bayou while William was out hunting in the Catentin. They were the Count of Bayou, Ranulf I, the Viscount of Cotentin, Neil II, nicknamed Falconhead, which is kind of cool, Lord Hymon Le Singal, Essen Thury, Fontenay et Clécy, Raoul I, nicknamed the Badger. Credit goes to the Normandy Then and Now website for that list, by the way. As William hunted near Valognes, these co-conspirators plotted. However, the age-old algorithm that teaches the hard-learned lesson, the more people brought into a secret, the greater the probability that secret has of being spoiled, comes into play here. William was tipped off before the plot could even be hatched. A jester of all things, a jester performing in the background of the proceedings at Catentent was loyal to the Duke, and he heard everything. As soon as he could, he snuck away, found William, and warned him of the plot. This next quote, too, comes from the, the same website, Normandy Then and Now. As I could only find a Latin text of the 12th, 12th century poet Wace's tome describing William's life, called Roman Le Roux, it tells of the jester named Golet stealing a horse and writing to William, telling him this, quote, If thou art found here, thou wilt die. Thy enemies are arming around. If they find thee here, thou wilt never quit Catentin, nor live till the morning. End quote. Essentially, Golay the Jester acted in a virtuous manner in relation to the narrative that William is our hero here. Whether this part of the story is true uh, is up for debate, as Wace wrote these words two or three generations after the events, though historians universally agree that it, it more or less fits well within the overall narrative here. Either way, it beckons the literary motif taught by acclaimed psychoanalyst Carl Jung eight centuries later when he says, quote, The fool is the precursor to the savior. End quote. Again, subscribing to the idea that William is indeed the savior of Normandy and subsequently England, then this holds true. William might never have made it out of Contenton without the noble work of the fool. Regardless, it's at this point that William makes one of the boldest moves to date. He escapes Catentin, finds a lowly lord outside of Bayou who smuggles him out of the hostile territory avoiding towns and cities, and delivers him safely to Falais. It was just over 60 miles of fear for the young duke, no doubt. Hiding out at home wasn't a long-term viable solution, obviously. 
on that 60-mile journey, William no doubt had ample time to digest what was happening in his duchy. Though his Norman aristocracy was always a boiling mess, his political moves against them in the previous years had spurred their actions against him, against him. And they weren't mere actions to reinstate their position either. They were treasonous plots, even those to murder him. William must act, and he must act swiftly and mercilessly. He must stand in opposition to these powerful nobles, much like his father had done a decade or so earlier. It is here when William truly, quote-unquote, earned his spurs. Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, writes, quote, Realizing that he was powerless against the combined might of the Western Viscounts, William left Normandy and sought the assistance from the King of France, a fact confirmed by both William of Jumiege and William of Poitiers. Given the events of a few, few years earlier, the, this action might seem surprising. It was certainly desperate. William probably appealed to Henry as a vassal to his superior lord. Very likely the duke had sworn allegiance to the king either on the occasion of his knighting or perhaps at the time of his accession. If so, William was now calling in his side of the bargain, demanding his sovereign's assistance, end quote. William, it seems, had made the right decision, as bold as it was. But further speculation leads us to the idea that King Henry, too, saw William as a mere pawn to keep order within the troublesome and annoying duchy. So even by the age of 18, certainly old enough in the 11th century to be considered a man, William was still possibly considered nothing more than an ineffectual buffer. Regardless of Henry's intentions, Henry acted. By early 1047, the King of France had entered the chaotic arena of Norman politics. In response, William amassed a far smaller force from his loyalists in eastern Normandy, which included a redemptive attempt by none other than Roger of Tosny's son, Raoul II. Again, this, this one move, would pay dividends in the future. It was now clear that there would be a showdown between the Duke and the one who would claim to be the same. William, now bolstered by the king's men in addition to his own, was destined to square off against the pretender. King Henry I and William combined forces, forces numbering around 10,000 infantry and a few thousand cavalry. Led by William himself, it's worth noting the cavalry was. In the town of Cain, near the English Channel, almost straight north of Falais. This peaceful town rested near the river Orne, which acted as somewhat of a barrier between the two armies, as Guise forces, numbering almost double, around 20,000 total, were spied approaching from the opposite shores just days before a battle would be waged for the duchy. William was certainly clever in his approach to the king months earlier, insofar as how he framed his appeal for royal aid. See, it's one thing to call in a favor from your liege, but it's quite another to demand it. William did less implied demanding than he did articulating the demand in a way that offered the king no other option than to help. By framing the situation as a threat to the king, 
William could, without question, count on the king's intervention, which would fulfill William's ultimate goal of subduing the duchy. It, it wasn't so much, hey, so I need some help, and since I proclaimed fealty to you and you alone a few years back, you should really help me. As opposed to say, hey, so since you acknowledged me as heir to my father's duchy, this Guy of Brion's uprising to unseat me is, well, it's actually an affront to your decree, to your royal decree. If you let this guy get away with it, who knows who else might try something similar? It was, as Don Corleone would say, an offer he couldn't refuse. With this message being announced all across Normandy, that of Guy of Brion essentially rebelling against, not William, but the king? Well, many loyal to Guy's efforts switched allegiances. And this is key here. It was one thing to overthrow what was seen as an illegitimate duke, but it was quite another to rebel against the highest law in the land. While each side waited on the other to blink, a few nobles, such as Ralph Tesson, defected and begged forgiveness in front of his king, who readily admitted the lord and his contingent into his lines. It was actually the work of Lord Tesson to cause a touch of chaos within the rebels' ranks the day before the historic battle by traveling with his contingent back across the River Orne and creating a, a bit of a skirmish in the rear of Guy's forces. Tesson's men took a toll, but, but it was enough to settle the rebels, no doubt. That next day, that, that humid August morning, William would lead a cavalry attack on his opponents who had just crossed the River Orne. It was a bold move, but the young duke had most likely had enough, enough of it all. The doubt, the plot to murder him, I should say the plots to murder him, and those around him even, many of those successful plots. The open attack on his character, he'd had enough of all of it. And these rebels, led by a man he once shared a home with, trained with, and broke bread with. Well, this couldn't stand any longer. Here's the line. If he was to claim this duchy as his own, then a clear message would, would, must be sent. It is said that he saw only red as he called his men to arms and rode towards the opposing cavalry. He saw nothing but bloodlust. He was driven by the very thing that drives a person to fight. Survival. And not necessarily his survival as we know it today. This was a sense of survival that comes with being cast aside in the minds of those around you for as long as you can remember. You know, here's a rare personal break from the narrative, if you'll allow it. But whenever I read into someone's situation that amounts to this kind of this kind of survival, so to speak, I always think of my eighth grade year in school. I remember sitting in our band room, our music room of school, listening to our music teacher one day when a punk kid named Brian, sitting a row behind me, threw something at the back of the head of Tony, who sat to my right. See, Tony was often picked on by others, unfortunately, and it seemed he was destined to be cast aside socially for the rest of his... Well, his educational life, I suppose. 
But as the little pieces of paper hitting him on the back of the head coupled with the whisper, whispered insults cast his way, what else is a person to do in that situation? All other avenues had been extinguished to that point. Without warning, a crashing of desks was heard, and before I could whip my head around, Tony was launching himself at Brian behind him. They both fell backward, Brian still sitting in his chair, and Tony began a series of punches to the face that established himself as one who was no longer on the menu of the social pecking order. That was a guy who had simply had enough. He, it could be said, saw only red in that moment. I mean, what did he have to lose? And William, I find, could be interpreted in this moment in the exact same light. He was simply a man who'd been pushed too far. Seeing red, he was the first knight to clash with the enemy. His liege, King Henry, followed closely behind him. The infantry sat back watching the skilled knight on horseback fight, the clashes and clangs of swords ringing in their ears. And while William struck down the enemy in scores, it's said that King Henry was dismounted himself and only survived because his retainers hauled him to safety. William paid no heed, and his fierce Norman knights watched him as the enemy turned and fled, screamed out the order to chase them down and slaughter every single person who doubted his legitimacy, every single person who dared test him on the battlefield. Looking around, William must have noticed that Guy had fled sometime earlier, but he cared very little for this upstart bully and continued to slash his way into the history books. Many opposing Norman nobles were cut down, some say by William himself. But as the archers and infantry stood idly by, the Battle of Vallis Dunes, as it was called later, was a clear victory for William. In fact, it wasn't just a battle that thinned out the numbers of his opposition. No, William, during the conflict, actually swung support to his side. Many rebel barons saw him and were so impressed during the fight itself that they fled and then rounded to William's side. Vallis Dunes would go down as the moment William truly, truly became a duke. That is, to be more or less, and even reluctantly, accepted as the heir, the legitimate heir, to Robert le Magnifique. Though William would continue to suppress minor uprisings here and there, as well as some scuffles with King Henry himself, until his fateful destiny in 1066, he was, without question, the Duke of Normandy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on William's true rise to power within his own duchy. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. And don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter at Wheel Podcast or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I would love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com and please consider supporting the show on Patreon. Later that day, Guy of Brion would surrender himself to William and to his king, begging forgiveness. 
and though death was the accepted punishment of, of a rebel, William began showing a political acumen that would serve him immensely in the years to come. By letting Guy live, and keeping him as a count in his own court. The only catch? Guy was pretty much on an unofficial house arrest for the rest of his life. See, Guy wasn't exactly the most popular person in, in Normandy after Valles Dunes. He didn't just lose the battle, he also failed to protect his allies, soldiers. Because when he retreated, his men also retreated. And with William trailing them, smelling blood in the air, these same soldiers had to make the decision to cross back over the River Orne en masse. Not a big deal until you realize that bridges were scarce and they were wearing, many of them, full suits of armor. Folks downriver had quite a sight when they saw the river nearly clogged with knights, archers, and foot soldiers' bodies hours later. On the next episode, with William's duchy firmly established under his command, we will switch our focus away from the Normans and talk about someone we haven't seen much of recently. I'm excited about this one as I find his life's journey absolutely fascinating. Next time, we accompany a man named Harold Sigurdsson, though history knows him today as Harold Hardrada. I can't wait to tell you about it. 